Welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. For many years, the healthcare system in Sweden has been considered one of the best in the world. Swedish life expectancy is high, and their infant and maternal mortality rates are among the lowest in the world, for example. This is in stark contrast to the United United States, where infant and maternal mortality rates are are the worst among high-income countries, and life expectancy has dropped in recent years. People like our guest today have been important contributors to Sweden's healthcare system over many years. But Joran Henriks, Chief Executive of Learning and Innovation at the Kulturum in the County Council of Jönköping, Sweden, would be the first to tell you that his country has opportunities for improving further. He has many valuable insights to share, including how new stressors are challenging Sweden's health and healthcare systems. We talked with Joran, a longtime friend of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, at this year's International Forum on Quality and Safety in Healthcare in Copenhagen, Denmark. Joran Henriks, welcome to Turn On The Lights. Thank you very much. Fun to be here. You're from Sweden. And yes. I'm guessing that many of our listeners will not know much about the Swedish health system and about Sweden in general. So tell us a little bit about Sweden and how the health system works. Sweden have nearly 11 million people, and we have a system that are run mostly by the regions. And the regions are 20, and each of them has a healthcare system that they have to take care of. So the region is a geographic part of it. It's a geographic part of the country. So it would have an average of half a million people, something like that? Yeah, most of them. Even though uh, Stockholm, that is much bigger, and then we have small ones too. Now... In Sweden, we fortunately pay taxes to three levels if we have a higher income or two levels if it's a little lower. So we pay money to municipalities and they take care of social care and home care and the schools and the local building ideas and so on. So these are cities and towns. That's what they're responsible for. And then we have... Social care, you mean? uh, Yeah, social care is then how to help people that uh, are living on uh, economic uh, challenging situations. It is how you help people that have been far away from the work market. And it can be immigrants, migration issues. It can be helping people that are living alone with many children. So it's not a single family uh, so that's parenting. All handled, that's all handled at the municipal level. That's the municipality level. Okay. And to the municipality, we pay around 21 to 23 percent of our income. That's pretty that's high. Okay. <laughs> and then we pay another 10 to 11 percent of our income to the regions. So most Swedish people pay about 33 percent based on the income directly to two levels. What's the region responsible for? We are responsible for the healthcare system and some investments in culture and education. And nowadays we also get some money from the state level 
around how to invest in new infrastructure and economics around companies. And then if you have a high income, you also pay a, a tax to the state, to the federal government. Now, besides this, we have a 25% T on regular things like food and- so That's uh, value-added tax. Yeah. That's value-added tax, yes. On like for food and- Other things like that. Then books and uh, some uh, cultural things are lower, but um, it's mostly 25%. What would be the total percent of, of your income that you're actually paying in all three of those taxes? Well, I would say uh, between 33 and 48% of your income you pay as, to tax, as a tax. Then, of course, we have a free school system and the region pays for the health care that is delivered, no matter if it's done by a public-owned company or organization or a private company. So, so for those taxes, you're getting free health care and free education? Including university education. What about medical school? It's free. Wow. So you're getting education, healthcare, and you said when you, so when you go into a hospital or a clinic or otherwise, there's no payment, there's no money. There is a little, what I think you in America should say, co-pay. Yeah. Before you have paid up till $190, you pay a co-pay like 150 to 300 Swedish krona. that's about 15 to $30 for a visit. But after you have paid up to... 1800 1900 krona, $190. Uh, after you have paid as much as that, then everything is free. And it's the same with the medication. So, so let me repeat that to make sure people heard you. So it's per visit, you pay something like 10 to $15. Yes. But when the total amount you pay in a given year has reached a hundred and... Let's say uh, $190. $190, and it, after that, there's no copay. No, and it's the same amount of money for medication. So that's a, a, another tunnel. So people that have paid $400 to the system, no matter if it's medication or services given, they have free care the rest so of the year. Does the government own the delivery system, also own the hospitals, the doctors no. or, or employees, or is it, is it the system? The regions the run region. the healthcare system and they employ the people and they are also responsible for how the service is delivered. So is a doctor a an employee of the region? Yes. An employee? Yes. Yeah, you said something a minute ago that I just want to pick up on again and make sure I have it right. This is all the public system, but is there a private sector? So 50% of primary care service are, the, are delivered by private vendors. 55 of 50, yes. But the money comes from the same. So that's what I was going to clarify. So the funding that's paid through taxes is either going to pay for public provision yes. service, or yeah. even if you go to a private sector doctor, the money for that exchange or that interaction is still coming from the same place from the public sector. Yeah. So we have no real private sector in, in an American perspective. Private payment. No. It, private who payment. sets the prices? How, who decides how much? The different regions decides their own. But nowadays, there is a legislation that says if you are not satisfied with a service in your own region, you're free to go to another region and get the service from there. 
<laughs> and this have reduced the differences in prices. In prices. So before this happened, if you wanted to get a go to a primary care doctor for a regular annual visit, one region can say that costs $50, another region can say that costs $200. Uh, theoretically, yes. But now because people are free to move wherever they want to go get care, people that are going to go to the $50 place. And that makes a, yeah. a pressure on the regions of course, to reduce the costs and, and take out waste. Or so since the, the healthcare is being paid for the hospital care anyway at, by the region, yeah. uh, who decides how much the region is going to spend on healthcare? That's another, of course, uh, challenge for the regions because if they start to taxate the individual too high, then the individual don't want to stay in that region. So there is a movement to the middle also in this. So about 10 to 11% all regions taxate. So they're about, the, the, all regions end up taxing about the same. Yeah. And then we have a, another system that we call the Robin Hood system. Robin Hood. Robin. Yes. The British man who took from the rich and gave to the poor. If the CNI, that is a social care index, shows that one region has a more heavy population, then... You mean more, a poorer population? Or more sick. More, a sicker population. Uh, it can be both poor and sick. Then they get money from the rich region. So every year, the all 21 regions starts with the same amount of money based on nine different care indexes. So do you, do you ever have a situation so in, the, in the U.S., public education is funded by tax revenue. And we have this curious thing that happens in the U.S. where wealthy parts of the city or state will tend to have better schools because it's based on tax revenue. So the tax revenue for a wealthy neighborhood because the incomes are higher and it's a flat schedule of taxation is the, the, the total amount of money is greater in those neighborhoods than in, in poorer neighborhoods. Do you have a situation in, in Sweden where wherever the wealthy folks live, since it's all funded out of the general tax revenue, that you have actually wealthier health systems in certain parts of the country than others? Not wealthier health systems, but you're touching something that is at least, uh, as I think, a black side of Sweden. We haven't been clever concerning the schools. So we have uh, many school companies that um, uh, run schools uh, parallel with the public schools, mm -hmm. and they can take the money as a company and invest in other things. They can take the tax money. The tax money, mm -hmm. yeah. And that has really forced the problem. People move their children to different schools, just as they do in the United States. In the education system. In the education system, but not in the healthcare system. Why does that happen in the health system? Just, what, what makes it so that doesn't happen? What makes it so that this, I don't know, Gothenburg or might be a wealthier city than another city here in Stockholm. Oh. I don't know, why wouldn't you end up with any money? This comes down to the political balance. And the municipality that runs the schools are 200, and they can decide what schools should be established in their municipality. Yeah. 21 regions is fewer, and it's harder for the right-wing 
to change the situation concerning healthcare. But we have that kind of discussions among the politicians all the time. So how good is healthcare in Sweden? What do we know about that and what do people think about that? I think that access is our um, toughest issue. But besides access, I think Sweden are among the three best in the world concerning clinical results and uh, yeah, finances and so on. I can't help asking who the other no, two are. <laughs> no, but I think that uh, there are countries like Singapore that uh, have good results uh, nowadays. <laughs> I think in certain areas, uh, maybe uh, Denmark are a little better or even England are better in some areas. But if you S- summarize it, Sweden are very, have a very strong health. What is the access problem? What What is driving, What you, you said access is a big issue. What, What's driving the access problem? Uh, it, it is a, a complicated issue because I think that we seem to talk about access as it is a question of how many minutes do you have to wait before you come in uh, to a service. And the technology open up so many new opportunities. So in certain diagnostic areas, we get access problems because we haven't invested quick enough with the competence that should deliver that service. That is one problem for the hospitals. And we have too many hospitals in Sweden. So we need a consolidation, but with the 21 regions, it's hard to make that consolidation. Does every region have its own cancer hospital and its own heart surgery hospital? No, we don't have cancer hospitals. I would say we have in Stockholm, Gothenburg, and Malmö. That's it, so every region refers to those. Yeah, if it's high specialty cancer care. Otherwise, we take care of the cancer care in the local hospitals more generally. Then primary care stuck in this ambition that we should move out care from the hospital to make them do more things. And I think that we haven't thought through the solutions, how we deliver community-based care because we're stuck in the definition of primary care and specialty care instead of looking at the service as something you have in your pocket. You're, you, would, you rank your country in the top three or so in the world in terms of outcomes. What are you paying? Do you happen to know what you're paying as a percent, say, of your national economy? We, we, we're about 20% in the U.S. About 20% of the U.S. gross domestic product is accountable by health care. What is it in Sweden? It depends. But somewhere between 9 and a half and the 12% of our... Half of our spend. Yeah. So how... Okay, half. Help us understand that. How can we be spending twice as much as Sweden? And we're not, I think we're ranked down around 40th or something. It changed a little if you look into how much we invest in social services, the things I mentioned previously. So Sweden next France are the country in the world that put most money into social services. Sweden and France. Sweden and France are the top two. And I think... That investment that is cheaper per citizen than bringing people to the hospital give us a lot of benefits in the long run. So what you're saying is that Sweden puts a lot of money into social care services like taking care of 
poor no, people. We have no home, homeless people at all. Uh, you have no homeless, no homeless people, people at all? No. The only homeless people uh, we have, I would say, are people that have psychiatry diagnostic mm-hmm. issues that right. maybe so, over time stay outside because of their condition and so on. And sometimes our service in psychiatry do not work. 100% and then we find people on the streets, but otherwise we don't have any. So Sweden invests a lot of resources, second with France or yeah. tied, whatever, right up there with France in terms of how much you invest in social care, homelessness prevention, et cetera. Yeah. And the result of that, and therefore the spend in healthcare is less. Is that what you're saying? That's one uh, issue around this. Uh, I think it's a very important one. Then. Uh, another one, I guess, is our high education level of nurse. We have a, a nurse education that lasts for five and a half, six years. So we have many specialty nurses and they do a lot of qualified <laughs> services that maybe other countries, nurses. Uh, for, for example, what kind of things do Swedish nurses do? They do endocrinology. Like take they care of diabetes, for example. Take care of diabetes. They do uh, a lot of cancer screening things. They give medication for cancer patients oh. that uh, doctors uh, in many countries <laughs> deliver in, instead and so on. So. I think this has helped us to anyway. Was this part, I mean, this sounds like a very important issue there. around the world right now. We have problems with workforce and lots of challenges around that. Are you, was this part of a deliberate effort in Sweden to try to skill the nurses differently than elsewhere in the world? Yes, absolutely. Jaren, let's talk a bit about you and your local work. Kedar and I have many times visited your region, Yun Shipping region. It's called, it's about 100, 150 miles west of Stockholm, yeah, or something, okay. something like that. So it's a small city. <laughs> it's a, it's somewhere in, no, it's a small region. Small in the region. Way. Yeah. Yeah. You've got three or 400,000 people. Yeah. yeah. 365,000 people. And you've been working there for a number of decades. I'll just say that I think Kedar would agree. What you've done in yen shipping is world leading in terms of its commitment to quality improvement is a core feature. You developed a, a center in Yen Shipping. It's a, it's a building. It's an actual physical center called Kultur that is now helping not just the Yen Shipping region, but all of Sweden learn about and practice quality. I'd love you to talk a bit about that. What led you to that? And, and what are some of the things you're proudest of that you've been doing in this quality work in Yen Shipping? First, I need to say that without fantastic partners, we wouldn't have reached this uh, level of performance and level of understanding that we have today. And IHI have been such an inspirational partner. And uh, through IHI's network, we also have uh, met people that are uh, about the same kind of people as we are, love their work, try hard and search for new ways of doing things. And those things you need to have in your backbone or in your DNA, DNA as a system if you want to achieve better results. Then, of course, relationships within our system has meant a lot. My colleague Mats Boyesteg, my colleague Agnetir, and so on, all these relations have worked so well 
And we have had the same vision that we should not be best, but be, we should be best on improve our system. And that's, of course, a different... Uh, not just the best, but the best improver. Yeah, without, uh, it doesn't matter if we are not the best, but we should be the best at making, and making things better. So tell us about an achievement, something that you have improved and how you approached it you're very proud of. I think that our luck was that we very early understood what business process re-engineering was. Oh, we, no, that's, one, a, that's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> we translated that to healthcare process re-engineering. Uh-huh. And we got, we had a consultant, a Norwegian woman that came from IBM that became a hospital CEO in Oslo. And she teached us health, business process engineering. And based on that knowledge, the whole idea of Esther developed. What, and what's Esther? Esther. Okay. Esther. So tell us so about Esther. Esther, that's an 82-year-old woman living in a small city in our region, having heart problems, swollen body, and she calls uh, her daughter, I need help. Based on her situation and her day when she needed that help and had to go through care centers and hospitals, emergency rooms, laboratory testing many times, and ended up in the hospital at 10 in the night, met 30 people. She meets maybe five new people a year, and this day she met 36 new people. So Esther, wow. Esther's made up. Esther is a it's fictional a, person. Totally a fiction. Okay, so. I've heard the story of Esther many times, and I've always wanted to ask you this question. It's, Esther it's a, not a real person anywhere in the world? She is very representative, but she is not hot and blood. There, so I, there was no patient that anybody encountered that inspired this kind of notion. Of, so uh, how, how did Esther help you? How did creating this image help you? We realized that All problem solving on the floor needs to start with the question, what is best first? And then the healthcare process re-engineering, the business process re-engineering question came up that, how can I help the step before by telling them I need help so the patient are prepared in a way that I can meet the patient as good as possible. And feedback to them, of course, how the results become. And then go to the step after and do the same thing, but in an opposite way. Ask the next step, what can we do for you? So you're putting Esther at the center. I I had this image in my mind, I have since you first told me of this years ago, of a table, a circular table, and everybody's at the table, the doctors, the nurses, the ambulance company, the social care system. Go ahead. Now, based on this process, we see that there is not one institution or one team or one person that can contribute to the whole process. So we need to develop a generic process that everybody share. So we describe her life from the same map. And so, and it, it includes what you said before, which is for everybody around that table, one question they ask is of others, how can I help you? And then the other part is, what do I need from you? So yep. there, there's a explicit exploration of the way in which the different helpers depend on each other 
And then the circle you talked about, all the different uh, vendors or partners around Esther had to have a common aim, and that is we do it together. Give us an example of how Esther helped you to change the design of some aspect of healthcare or social care. When I went to a geriatric uh, ward uh, at one of our hospitals, they had team problems and the communication issues. And I started to feel that here is something that is wrong. So then I asked them, how many of you have been to a service house? What, what's a service house? Uh, that's like a care home for elderly. Okay. How the life is for the people that you take care of. And what I saw then was that only one third or maybe up to half of the <laughs> employees have been to home for elderly. They had only seen the elderly when they were at the hospital. So they couldn't understand where Esther was, basically. Exactly. Where Esther was coming from and maybe returning to. Exactly. Spending most of her time. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to go the patient's journey or walk. And that's how we started Esther. So we made the Department of Medicine all employees to walk a journey. Working up, walking up, literally walking the patients. Yes, we. <laughs> How long has Esther been helping you? How many? Since 97, 97. An 84 year old woman has been there 30, for 25 <laughs> for 25 years. years. Yes. Yeah. And then the second thing I'm very proud of was, of course, the self dialysis. Self dialysis. Yeah, self dialysis. Because that was a breakthrough showing that the lived experience and the patient's opportunities to take care of themselves were so much better than we could imagine. So you have to set this up for us and (laughs) tell the story. So tell tell us what is self-dialysis and how does it work? This was an engineer from the flying industry that had taken out one of his uh, kidneys and uh, the other one didn't work. And he told the nurse that I don't want to live any longer if uh, this kidney continues to not working. And she was engaged with his problem. So she started to give him ideas. Maybe it's not that bad that you come to us and get support. Maybe you can come when you like to come. So his problem, this is an engineer, Again, there's a theme in your in your in this conversation about engineering, but this is somebody who's an aviation engineer who uh, suddenly had a new diagnosis that required him to be on dialysis. Yes, and uh, what was he? He was saying, "I don't want to. I don't want to live any longer. I don't want. I don't want to live with this condition. I don't want to come to the hospital when they want me to come. I don't want to be I depend on this kind of medication." rest of my life. So the normal dialysis system that this person was being offered would be you would come three or more times a week to this center yes, and you'd sit in a chair and nurse would put in the The catheter to draw the blood. It would go through the machine. You sit there while they adjust the machine and he didn't want, and it would be Tuesday at 9 a.m. is when your appointment is. He didn't want to be helpless. And you sit there for hours. And you sit there for hours, yes. And I think he thought that life was not worth to live. 
Back with that situation. kind of dependent mm-hmm. situation on many things. So this nurse seems like an interesting Yes. Person. So she so, says, okay, I'm going to help you out. Yeah, but don't talk too much about uh, to others that we make a test. Keep it down. So you can come when you like to come. You decide when you're coming. Yeah. And I help you when you come to run the process. But we have to test. So the first level was, of course, to learn what kind of uh, procedures they are connected to the machine and so on. But after two, he could take care of the whole process. Now that's clear. He could put his own needle in his vein. Yes. He could open, turn on the machine, yes. adjust the machine, yes. adjust the IV fluids, yes. completely running the show yes. themselves. I, I'm guessing that some of our listeners will be familiar with this. Either they themselves will require dialysis or they will know family members that have to do the same thing. And I'm curious, actually, what this did to the clinic. So you have this guy now, this patient, who's running his own dialysis, more or less. Yeah, so the name of this guy is Christian. And then came a second one, Patrick, that saw this happening. And he said, I also want to do this. Why is that guy? Yes. So then he started to test. And then we got the 80-year-old woman that said, I also want to test. So then we had three people that from A to Z took care of the process. Now, Christian had a dream. So he said, we need our own house. The patient said this. So he went up to the CEO of the region and said, this is not fair to bring us into the regular hospital. We need our own house. So we built a pavilion outside the hospital so they could come whenever they liked. And they came at five o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the evening, depending on what time they could so go by, there. So now you've got many patients. Yeah, so up to 20 we had. And then suddenly we saw that all of them that were under 65 had a regular work. Before that, they had to live half-time or full-time on insurance money because of their disease. So people who were under 65 who were acquiring dialysis formerly had to give up their work altogether or they had to go to a half-time schedule because they had to come in to get this dialysis done. And now they're being able to have their jobs. Uh, Regular jobs, jobs. Keeping their jobs. So today, is it just a few patients that can do this or is it standard of care? How does it work? Today, I would say that we have about 10 to 15 patients every month that do their dialysis. What happened to costs? We haven't done that uh, analysis, but um, we think that the fantastic revenue comes to the situation that they have a completely changed social situation. They can work. They own their own autonomy and and they have a positive view of the future. The total value sounds like it's probably there somewhere. Yeah. Look at all of the cost where it adds up. Yeah. Well, I, I have the benefit of having been in shipping and shipping a number of times of seeing some of these innovations and others I'd love to talk to you more about. But I know something about you personally, which is that you were the coach of the Swedish national basketball. Yes. Team. So you're a very accomplished basketball coach. And I, I know you and I've talked about this before. How, how has that shaped your approach to uh, 
leading improvement in, in healthcare. How have you drawn on that? I think a lot because uh, when you uh, work with people that have put all the investments in one box and they are doing it fantastically well, you have to have an approach where you try to understand what their view of the things are. <laughs> and that's how top sports uh, are. You have to, as a coach, understand what they see. And it's the same with physicians for each player. <laughs> and you have to learn based on their views what is needed to do. <laughs> and also in team sports, you lose one third of your team every year. And most coaches in, in schools and so on, they have a program with a standardized set of things that should be done. And they more or less push the players into that standard. <laughs> but in a club situation, you have to live with the resources you have. And you have to have a leadership that can bring out the best of each individual. And that's a different leadership. And I think we need in healthcare more of that leadership. I'm right now so occupied with this, all the digital things that's happening around us, like AI. We have lived in a definition that a professional knowledge, doctor's knowledge, are a stable quality because they know <laughs> exactly based on their guidelines. But we are now in a situation where the stable knowledge is not there any longer. And it's the same in top sports. It's an edgy business where everything changed so quickly. <laughs> so we need a new kind of leadership for tomorrow's healthcare of change where you adapt much more <laughs> quickly to the new things. You're saying that the presence of AI in our environment now is disturbing the knowledge base. It's creating the need to build a different kind of leadership. So yes. That's successful. Yes. In some ways, this relates to Christian being able to design his own dialysis. Yes. You know, he brought that to you. You didn't bring yes. that to him. No. Yeah. So this is what's happening now. So we need to really think through if our standardization approach can be integrated as a stable thing. I don't think it is stable. I think it is uh, something that moves over time all the time. So the need to learn differently is certainly present in the, yes. in the landscape. And, and the cycle time on learning is it's becoming even faster than yes. ever before. Yes. Euron, we have a, we you know, tend to, and this has been really exciting to hear about and some amazing innovative things that you're working on, have always been working on in gunshipping. We, we have a question that we end all of our conversations with, which is about how optimistic or pessimistic you might be about the future where we're headed in healthcare. Well, how do you feel about Sweden's trajectory and if I can invite you to comment on what we're dealing with globally now in healthcare, what do you think? What are your thoughts? I think we a little underestimate the pressure in Europe based on the war of Ukraine. And the money that now goes into risk reduction in other sectors 
And that will push both the school systems and healthcare systems all over Europe much more than we could imagine right now, I think. In the short term, we cannot expect that there are so much free money in the systems any longer. But in the longer run, I'm very optimistic because I think that we know that the service sh should not be delivered in houses. It should be delivered where people are. And there we are on the edge of something very interesting and fun. Likely to happen first in Sweden, I think, given what I've <laughs> yes, seen. Yes, yeah. I hope so. Thank you so much, Jaron. It's Thank been a pleasure to have you. Great to have you. Thanks. Good effective basketball coaching, too. What did you hear, Kater, from Jaron? He said something at one point that I wrote down. He said that we have to have three conditions, love the work, try hard, and then look for new ways of doing things. And if I think Euron exemplifies all three of those ideas, but uh, I, if I could just pick the last one there, sort of looking for new ways of doing things. I think that Yan Shiping and, and Euron in particular have always really looked for new ways of doing things. And so much of the source of inspiration for those new ways of doing things are the people for whom the thing is meant to benefit the esters of the world, the, the patient, the dialysis patient, ask them what they need and then go build it. And it seems, seems to be the mantra. Yeah, you're interesting. He's become a bit of a pilgrimage site for people around the world that are interested in improvement because what Euron and his colleagues have done is, I think it's unique. The Esther story, which I'm glad we got into, is it, it's so iconic to put the patient at the center and then really say to everybody, hey, everybody, there's the constitution. This is what we're gonna serve. And now we have to explore our interdependencies. It's very real there. It's, it's so interesting is that everybody talks about that. If you spend enough time with healthcare leaders around the world, people talk about putting the patient at the center of everything. And there's lots of diagrams drawn in conference rooms all over the planet in which the patient is archetypically put on the middle of the dashboard with concentric rings and whatever. But Yan Shipping and, and Yaron really made it come to life in a, in a different kind of way than I think. Well, there's a lot of lip service. Uh, I don't know how they did it. I was in Yun Chipping at a party one night at Euron's uh, organization. Uh, I don't some holiday that they were celebrating, and in walks Esther. They took one of the doctors dressed up as an 84 year old woman <laughs> and hobbled her way into the crowd to chat with people. It, it was no kidding. No, this is they were taking it quite seriously. The other piece I have to comment, I wish I had asked Yaron about it, is this cooperative endeavor. So I, one of the most remarkable experiences I've had in the past decade was visiting an area in the Entropic region, uh, Husqvarna, which is one of the many places where there's a center for sort of women and children's well-being. Yeah. And it was a building with a central atrium, and I think it were four wings. One wing was for birthing, for, for safe, effective birthing, midwifery-driven. A second wing was for early childhood, which at that time included uh, early childhood education for early intervention for a lot of immigrant children from the, I think it was the Balkan Wars, where the kids were being taken into classes and helped and while their parents were guided as well. Uh, I think the third was a mental health wing dealing with uh, psychiatric uh, uh, needs. And the fourth was about social services, reaching out and to help people with housing and food security and you know, other things that they were coping with, but it was all integrated in one building structure. So yeah, that almost the, yeah. the architecture spoke to you about it. And I believe that was supported by the health service. That's how they thought about the need. You have to wonder whether or not that kind of structural proximity actually creates a different sort of set of relationships that yeah. is likely to 
stimulate all kinds of creativity. Who knows where to go, but it'll certainly create new provocations. Yeah, it must have created a new opportunities for relationship. It, it was pretty striking and wonders how could you pull it off in the U.S.? What U.S. town yeah. could build such a center, publicly fund it, and integrate it with a healthcare system? Yeah. That'd be quite a stretch. And the other I mean, final point for me, probably this uh, interview, I think, was the discussion about coaching basketball, high-performance teams. I think there's a lot of comparisons around that, but I thought that the point of view that you're on offered was very interesting around that. You might have a system, coaches might have a system that they shoehorn their talent into, but it, he seemed to have a different point of view on that. He seemed to have the point of view that you have to look at the way that the play is going to run through the eyes of each of the individual players to try to understand whether or not there was going to be an advantage to one particular player or another. It, it felt like a very, in keeping with the theme of this show, it felt like a very person-specific or person-centered, in this case, player-centered. You know, the contradiction or, or tension between the need of the individual, understanding each player as a person, where they're coming from, what they need, what their vision is, and yet building a cohesive team that can with yeah. games. And it reminds me, we're both Boston sports fans. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of, I was, always thought that the Patriots and the NFL, because the system that Bill Belichick had built around, and, it, and it's so pervasive in how the players interact with the media, how he interacts with the media. It's just, it's a system that has a lot of stars in the system, lots of star players. But my sense is that yeah. there is this tension between seeing the world through those star players' eyes, but also having a system that surrounds them that makes some sense spoiler alert is that i once asked you to send me a note i said would you prepare a memorandum on coaching how you coach a, a basketball team and he sent me like five pages <laughs> and it was brilliant stuff all of which could echo in healthcare so i want to get your on back and talk about basketball yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. thanks a lot later well thanks The Turn on the Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armate. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn on the Lights comes from the RX Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at ihi.org. Thank you.